basically, I had two options. We paid 100 grand out. Festival cost 300,000 pounds in year one. No banks were loaning money. Hardly any sponsors around because everyone had tightened ship and didn't want to get involved because of the whole the global recession. So the only option we had was to remortgage our house. I had no staff. It was me, a mobile phone, and my wife. And the only option was to remortgage the house. So that's what we did. And if no one turned up on that first day, because people didn't put their card into a computer back then and buy tickets, people just turned up on the day. Welcome to the Driving Force Podcast, everyone. I'm your host, Chase Rosa, a former private equity analyst, now exploring human performance through podcasting, coaching, jujitsu, and endurance athletics. In this podcast, I'll be unraveling the stories of high performers across sports, business, and wellness. By presenting their stories, uncensored and uncut, I hope to inspire you to take a step back, look within, and develop your path and journey. Today's guest is Roger Woodall. Roger is one of the leaders when it comes to events in the UK. Over the past 20 plus years, he's created and owned 1,500 live events, 12 Bournemouth Sevens festivals, sold over 1 million tickets, and built and sold an international sportswear brand. Entrepreneurship and bringing people together have always been a part of Roger's life. He grew up in his parents' busy pub on the River Thames, which also happened to be next door to a nightclub. Even at the age of 10, he saw opportunities to make money and did everything from dumpster diving for toys to sell on a stand to selling Saturday night VIP line jump tickets to the nightclub next door. He was earning 600 pounds a weekend at 10 years old. The success only scaled up from there for Roger. While in college, he started a student nightclub brands company and in total hosted over 1,500 parties in major cities across the UK for over nine years. Then in 2007, while sitting on Bournemouth Beach, he came up with the idea for Bournemouth Sevens which is now the world's largest sport and music festival, with about 30,000 people showing up every year for the three-day event. Obviously, the pandemic didn't allow for the festival to go on in 2020, and so Roger pivoted to create some new ventures. The first, creating a podcast called The Eventful Entrepreneur, and the second, building an online course dedicated to helping people put on successful events. In this interview, we get into Roger's time growing up in the pubs, his love of sport and rugby, his student nightclub business, Bournemouth Sevens, and how he's adjusted to the pandemic. And so, without further ado, my interview with Roger Woodall. So I listened to the first episode of your new podcast and really enjoyed it. Uh, so do people call you Dodge? Is that right? More than they do Roger? Everyone knows me. I'm christened Roger, but everyone knows me as Dodge or Dodger. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think my parents even know my name's Roger. <laughs> and... Is there any other meaning behind that nickname other than you just need to be called a different name than your dad's? Yeah, my dad's, my dad's called Roger. I was christened Roger. So as a kid, I was always Dodger. Um, and from the last 40 years, I've always been known as Dodge or Dodger. That's what, that's what the, uh, the story behind it is. Okay. Talk to me about your upbringing in pubs in London and what that was like for you growing up. Yeah, it was great. It was absolutely fantastic. I, I, uh, it was you when you grow up in pubs uh, from a young age. You live, you live in a two-bed flat above, uh, you know, pub in London, and London's a very vibrant place, as you know. And back in the eighties and nineties, it was uh, there was a lot going on with people boozing and 
um, partying and whatever. But growing up above a pub was, was, was really good fun. Uh, I saw a lot of things maybe kids at a young age shouldn't see. Um, but that teaches a lot of lessons in life. Um, I had a lot of fun living above pubs. A lot, a lot of fun. Did you, like, did you enjoy being around all those people pretty much all the time? I loved it. Yeah. It's what it's made me who I am today. You know, I've I, I put on 1,500 parties in the UK and 12 sport and music festivals, 30,000 people in a field partying for three days. My whole life has been about events. And that's why, you know, I've got my own podcast, which launched yesterday called The Eventful Entrepreneur. Um, and it's gone down an absolute treat gone down an absolute treat so um yeah man growing up growing up in around adults the whole time and and seeing lots of parties and fancy dress and all that going on in the 80s and 90s i guess that's kind of led me into the the journey that i've been on in the past 20 years yeah yeah it's interesting like i wouldn't have been at all surprised if that upbringing led you to want to be like an acquired or acquired environment like I'd, i'm just sick of this like all these people but it sounds like oh, you just yeah. absolutely loved it I, I talk it up. I do talk it up living above a pub. It, 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 so many great times, but there's obviously a lot of down thing, downsides as well. Um, and I guess those downsides, but I didn't notice it when you're a kid. You know, when you live above a pub, it, it, there's music banging out all the way to 11 o'clock. And then we had a nightclub next door to us. Um, okay. so there's one little thin wall from my bedroom to the nightclub, which held a thousand people. And it was a, a very noisy upbringing with a lot of singing and dancing and, DJs on the mics and yeah, and that went on to sort of two o'clock in the morning. So I never got any sleep till then. Then everyone would come out the nightclubs, um, being really noisy and loud, whether they're fighting or mucking around or whatever. And that went on till three o'clock. Um, and obviously when you're living above pubs, we had two Alsatian guard dogs. So they'd wake up the guard dogs. The guard dogs would be barking <laughs> um, for an hour until it goes silent. And then the, then at five o'clock in the morning, you'd have all the people bring in, you'd have the Draymond, they're called Draymond in England, where they bring the big massive barrels and they roll them out at five o'clock in the morning to take them into the pub. And I don't know if you ever heard big barrels rolling along concrete floor. It's really, really loud. And they'd come in, they would be delivering at five o'clock in the morning. And I kind of didn't really get much sleep as a kid, if I'm honest with you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It sounds like it. And do you think that upbringing let forced you to grow up faster than a lot of your peers? 100%. You got to remember yeah. you're around you're around adults the whole time seeing people wheeling and dealing, people cutting deals inside the pub, people outside the pub. You were just around that environment and that's where I learned my trade. I learned my trade at, you know, I was grew up in pubs from the age of 4 in London and there's some real there's some real tough pubs we grew up in, but there was a lot of fun. There was a lot a lot of fun. Um and I guess that's where it's all stemmed for today. Me throwing a massive party in a field for 30,000 people. So yeah. it's kind of, it's interesting. I look back at my, my grandparents and they were in off licenses. My parents were in the casino world. Then they went into the pub world. And as I grew up, I went into the nightclub world. And now I'm in the festival world. So over three or four generations, you can see where it's gone, you know? Yeah. So that's, that's really where your entrepreneurial fire really kicked in. Like, did you start like cutting deals with people in the pub? Like, were you trying to sell people stuff? Like, how was that work? Yeah, hundred percent. You know, you got a thousand people in our pub. You know, DJs in there, music, people dancing. It was a vibrant atmosphere. 
And I had a nightclub next door. So at the age of 10, I'd go to the nightclub next door, the manager on a Saturday afternoon and buy 20 tickets off him for one pound, which is the equivalent to, I don't know, $2 for you guys. Mm. And then at between 10 p.m. and 11 p.m., I'd be selling these tickets to everyone in dad's pub. And that means they could jump, they could go straight into the nightclub and not have to queue. So my tickets were VIP queue jump tickets. So I'd earn my 20 pounds for selling the tickets. The customers were really happy because they got queue jump. And so it, it was just a win-win situation. So everyone was happy. So yeah, I learned, I learned that I learned that trade at a very young age. And it's weird now, 30 years on, I'm still doing the same thing, selling tickets, VIP tickets and queue jump. <laughs> yeah. But for a lot of money. Right, right. Yeah. In what ways do you think that upbringing in the pubs changed your perspective on maybe like the world and what like quote unquote normal life is? Yeah. Well, I didn't know what normal life was. I thought I was living in a normal life, if I'm honest with you. It's only when I went to my friends' houses and I realized they're all, you know, mum and dad are cooking dinner together. They're sitting on the dinner table, having dinner together and TVs off and everything, you know, having, you know, having nice times and stuff. And there was silence. They'd be in their garden. There'd be silence and bird singing. And that for me was just peaceful. And then I go straight back in the pub and you'll be seeing fights happening and then people in the fruit machine and the music loud and nightclub. And it was just looking back, it was, it was hectic, really, really hectic. And it's, um, it's made me want for very little in life. All I want is, and what I've achieved um, with a lot of hard graft is to have a real peaceful, calm life. Um, and that's what we've, that's what we've kind of developed it into now, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and doing the simple things in life you know I, was eat, I, was, I never sat around the table and had dinner I was always eating in the pub you know fish and chips as a kid or shepherd's pie and you'd be eating off the side of the table and, and I just really appreciate the simple things in life and calmness for me is the one massive gift that I love right certainly something you can get in Barbados Oh, yes. That's where I met your old man. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What a legend of a guy Michael is. <laughs> what, yeah. What a legend, man. I want to know more of his stories because he hasn't told me too much. But I can tell in his eyes. <laughs> when I see him in the gym and we have really deep, nice conversations. I can tell in his eyes he's got some stories behind those men's pies. <laughs> oh, yeah, for sure. And uh, if you listened to... I did a couple episodes with him, actually, for my podcast, so... If you take a listen to those, there are definitely a couple. There are definitely some stories in there too. And I listened to one of them, and it was really interesting. And uh, he's lived some life, and you know what? He's so young in the mind. And when he told me his age, I was shocked because I see him lift stuff in the gym, and I see his flexibility, and I see his mind strength. I don't think there's anyone I've met in the period that I've been alive, and I've got a very, very strong mindset of anyone who's probably got a stronger mindset than your old man. Yeah. He's uh, he just goes and goes kind of no matter what every day. The sort of man who hits a hundred doing his yoga, stretching, putting his <laughs> legs behind his head, all the stuff that he does. And his karate, is it karate? Yep. Yeah. That's what he does for martial arts. Yeah. I hate to get on the wrong side of him. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but, uh, so I would imagine that this upbringing also made you incredibly street smart at an early age. 100% mate. It makes you streetwise. Mm-hmm. You know, everyone can read all these books. 
everyone can go to university, everyone can go to college, everyone can go to school. You know, I knew, I knew I had more, I had something, I was given a gift and that gift had been streetwise and being one step ahead of the game, three steps ahead of the game. And you get to foresee stuff, what's about to happen. And, and when you move into business life, I feel like I'm three steps ahead of the game. Mm-hmm. Um, all those learning lessons, well, I learned as a kid. You know, whether I was in the pub selling tickets to the nightclub next door, whether I was outside the front of the pub and we'd have a, we'd set up a, a stall selling hot dogs and, and ice creams. Um, you know, back then as a 10 year old, I was only 600 pound a weekend. <laughs> you know, I don't know what that is in dollars, but as a 10 year old, this yeah. is big money. You know, you'd go to the cash and carry room and buy all the hot dogs and we'd buy all the ice creams and I'd be edging my bets depending what the weather would be. If it's a hot day, we're going to sell loads of ice creams. And I can take all the hot dog stuff back on Monday because it was like sale or return. Mm-hmm. So there was big, big money. I was, always, I was around a lot of cash in the, in, back in those days. And that was at the front of the pub and at the back of the pub. Because we've got to remember, we, we, our pub was on the River Thames. I don't know if you've heard of the River Thames in London. It's a massive yeah. river that goes through London. And our pub was a real buzz pub. It's a real vibrant pub where people, you know, in the, in the, in the town that we lived in, there was like three big nightclubs and one of the biggest nightclubs in the whole of the UK was there in Kingston. And we used to get everyone coming in from all the surrounding towns and, and, and places would come into, into, into Kingston. And um, so there was a lot of walk through trade where we were, you know? Um, so at the back of the pub, we had a, uh, we had like, um, I guess it's like a Walmart that you've got over in the U S but we called it WH Smith where they would sell all the big toys for kids. And okay. if there was a little chip on a toy or a problem with one of the toys, they would throw them in the big skips out the back. Um, so me and my mate would go skip diving, where he would hold on to my ankles, and I would go in and grab these big toys, and we'd set up a stand at the back of the pub, selling these toys every Saturday afternoon for people walk by trade. <laughs> so I certainly uh, learned my trade at a very young age, and uh, how to create win-win situations and, and, and give something that people want. And if you can give something what people want and with a smile on your face and you're both winning, you're both happy, that's all that business is. You know, and I, I, it annoys me when I see people learning business from books. Um, it doesn't happen like that. It doesn't work like that. People are using too much jargon and, and it just doesn't work like that these days. Well, it doesn't work like that for any days, but mm-hmm. yeah, I like to keep it very simple. Yeah, definitely. Definitely keep it simple. And you probably learned... Also, the really early early age, real negotiation skills. Yeah, yeah, negotiation skills key in anything, in anything, with your kid, <laughs> with your wife, with your dad, with your mum, doing business. You need to have the negotiation skills, and the more you negotiate, the more you know what works and what doesn't work. You know, and and um, again, it comes from that freedom as a kid to be around adults and see all these deals going on and. You know, I saw a lot of stuff and I was around a lot of stuff that kids should not see. Mm-hmm. That was cool as well because I used to love it. When my friends used to come to the pub, they thought it was the best thing ever. Playing on the <laughs> fruit machines, pouring pints, standing outside with all the doormen, seeing crazy stuff. And I, I just thought it was the norm and I absolutely loved it. And I look back. And it's only now when I'm starting to write, I'm in the middle of writing my book. And oh, cool. Um, it's only now that I've had time to actually stop because of the whole, coronavirus and actually look back what we've achieved you know and and life goes very quickly um as your old man told me 
and we've had conversations about it and it's just been living in the present not living in the past not living in the future but living in the present and michael very much lives in the present and i take a lot of gifts from your dad yeah i'm sure he'll be he'll be glad to hear that is it true your family had a pet monkey (laughs) (laughs) yes we did we had a we had a squirrel monkey it was had a little yellow face and it was a squirrel monkey about can you see on the computer there yeah this and um we also had a cockatoo a, a big white cockatoo with pink white and pink cockatoo and um we had loads of canaries flying around and you gotta remember we're living in a flat above a pub <laughs> right. you know my dad was on a farm the amount of animals and stuff that he had but um that's what he loved you know he's a he's a yeah but we had a pet monkey and that the thing is going back to your conversation there I'd sell the tickets to the nightclub. The nightclub would keep me awake till two o'clock. They'd all come out the nightclub at three. The, the draymen would roll the barrels. The Alsatians would bark till five in the morning as our guard dogs. That would wake up the cockatoo, our cockatoo, which would wake up the monkey and which would wake up all the canaries. It was just madness. It was <laughs> madness, but I loved it. Yeah. Because I didn't know any different. Right. Didn't know any different. <laughs> so it was, it was your dad that, I guess, wanted the... A pet monkey? <laughs> it was my dad wanted a pet monkey. Seems a bit weird now, but back in the 80s and 90s, that was just, not, no one had them. I don't think many people have them now, if I'm honest with you, but no, no that's how it was. I think we paid 600 pound for, I think it was 600 pound for the cockatoo. You know, this is talking 30 years ago, 35 years ago, or whatever. And then I think it was a, a grand for the monkey. <laughs> yeah, we did have a monkey. Uh-huh. <laughs> Would you ever get a monkey yourself? No. <laughs> no, I wouldn't say I agree with it, to be honest with you. But, you know, um, back then, I think there was no rules back then. I think the whole world, is, you know, I don't agree with having a monkey personally. But, you know, I think the world has changed massively in the year 2020 we're in now. I think the whole world's gone, not the whole world, I think. There's lots of... How do I put it? I'm not too sure how to put it PC, but I think the world's gone a bit soft in some in some areas. Sure. That's how I'm going to put it. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I would agree. Yeah. And so shifting gears here a little, talk to me about like the balance between pub life and school life because you obviously had to go to school. <laughs> yeah, I went to school. Um, it was interesting because uh, dad was in the pub game and mum's in the pub game and there was a lot of cash back then and they didn't want me to be around hanging around the pubs. Because, like I said before, I was seeing lots of stuff. I was hanging around with doormen. I was, I was going to nightclubs with doormen. Secu- I don't know if you, that's the right words in America, but security. Like a bouncer? Doormen. Yeah, bouncers. Mm-hmm. You know, and those, they, were, they were proper faces back then. And they'd be taking me to clubs at the age of 12, 13, in different parts of London. Because I knew I was safe with the, with the top men who everyone knew. Mm-hmm. So, um, and then in the daytime, I'd be going to bed at silly o'clock in the morning. In the daytime, I'd be going to, you know, mum and dad, I was very humbled and very lucky that they sent me to a, a private school which was a sports school I was good at sport and um, got a scholarship there so I was living like a double life I'm honest with you you know daytime go to school playing your sport with all the posh kids and then going to the pub when you finish you know <laughs> and going to bed at silly o'clock every night but yeah yeah that was my that was my world and uh, back then you got to remember my dad was a my dad was a bodybuilder Back then, he had all the gold, you know, Gold's Gym. Yeah. And the Gold's Gym top. And we'd walk to school every morning with, to the to the private school. And 
I'd have a, a rucksack on my back, a West Ham rucksack. We all supported uh, a football team called West Ham. I'd go to school with Dad, the two Alsatians, and all the other kids would turn up in like Porsches and Jaguars, and we were just, this is how it was, you know, and mm-hmm. there were great times, and I'd be walking to school for 40 minutes every day with Dad, my best mate, talking sport and business and life, and he just taught me great life skills and great morals in life, and... Um, that's worth a million dollars these days, mate. It's worth a million dollars. Yeah. Yeah. And it was um, interesting. At, at private school, he would, uh, he would give me each term. It was 600 pound back then. And he'd put 600 pound in my top pocket and start of each term. I'd walk to, to the headmaster's office and give him the money in, in cash. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't think the headmaster put that money through the books, put it that way. Right. I was the best mate every term. <laughs> Right. Yeah, that's funny. And uh, what was interesting, well, going back, going back to that story there, when my dad would drop me off, um, all the kids loved him. All the parents loved dad, and you know that we'd walk back, and 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 he was like the Pied Piper. So all the kids wanted to walk back, and dad would just, they would have like fifteen kids, and he'd drop them off all to all their houses every day, on a huh. walk back. You know, so mm. it was kind of that double life thing that they wanted, I guess, to be with the. Uh, maybe the cool dad, I guess. Right. You know? Yeah. yeah. But great, great memories, fantastic memories. And it's given me a lot of time to reflect these last few months, which has been beautiful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. So I'm guessing you tried to sell things to other students while you're in school too. Yeah. Yeah. I was always selling. I went to school and I knew there's going to be 300 kids there. I was thinking, what can I sell to these kids? what can I sell? So, you know, we used to get all the, t- I used to buy the Timberland jumpers from the market uh, for 10 pound each. And I'd go to school and sell them for 30 pound. And I'd sell like 50, 60 of them when they all got their pocket money on a Friday night, mm-hmm. you know? So um, yeah, as I was getting older, the money just got bigger and bigger. The numbers just changed, but the business model was exactly the same. And the business model is exactly the same today. The numbers have just got bigger. Right. You know, I was always all at school. I was always selling and um, throwing small little parties at school at the age of 15, 16, 17. And yeah, it was a uh, good, good times. And then I went to university after that. Okay. Yeah. I went to sports university. In your, in your podcast, you say something along the lines of that school isn't built for entrepreneurs, but for people who want to go out and work. Can you expand on that and like what's shaped your perspective on this? I just didn't get it. I didn't get going, being at school, knowing that from school, you'd have to go to eight different lessons, geography, history, physics, maths, English. It was, it was just a minefield for me. I just couldn't take it all on board. And I just knew from a young age, it just wasn't, you know, it's not going to benefit me learning algebra and learning how to use a Bunsen burner and learning just stuff that was just pointless. And I got it at a very young age. And, you know, school's not built for entrepreneurs. You know, entrepreneurs are creative. We're innovative. Where people like to think of an idea and create something and go and create a brand and away we go and go and sell something. And, you know, and the idea is to find, you know, other businesses. Businesses just, when I look at businesses, can you do it better? Is there a chink in their armor that you can go, I can do that better? That's what a business is. Can I make a better brand? If I can make better customer service, can I cut a better price? Can I have quicker turnaround times? Whatever you're doing in business. And that's the, 
that's what they don't teach you at school, which I find really sad, if I'm honest with you, because you're taught, you know, I've got some really clever friends at school and university and they come out, they can't find jobs. Because they've learned all this knowledge, but they haven't got any, they're not streetwise. They don't understand, you know. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I would agree with that too. And um, you've mentioned sports now um, quite a bit. Was being physically active something that your parents encouraged while you're growing up? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Our family's a sports family. Mm-hmm. You know, massive footballers, rugby players. Okay. Um, dad was into boxing. I love boxing. It was just, it was inbred into me from a day one because that was my, that was my get out because I was in classroom. I was either mucking around or making people laugh because I just couldn't understand why I was learning this. It just wouldn't go in. So I felt very comfortable when I was outside on the sports field and, and leading the way and captaining teams and smashing smashing sport. And that was my that was my way to get through school to get scholarships or move on to better things in life because the education side of it, I just wasn't for me. Yeah. And what led you to focus on rugby specifically? Um, well look, I was always grew up as a football kid soccer kid as you call it out there but you know <laughs> it got to a stage I went to the next school and I got a sports scholarship there for for rugby because I was playing rugby as well and then I just followed the rugby route um, and then yeah just followed the rugby route and then pushed that as, as far as I could go yeah so what were your like rugby goals and aspirations and how did they evolve over time like did you want to oh, be man. the best of the best did you want to play in the rugby world cup like yeah yeah, I wanted to play for England. Okay. That was the goal to play for England. And I, 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 when it turned professional in 1996, we we're all at Loughborough Sports University. Uh, and Leicester Tigers were like the Manchester United of rugby back then, you know, like the best in Europe and what have you. And us kids at that time, the age of 18, 19, we got snapped up by them. Um, and we did a season of semi pro while we're still studying which was unbelievable. When you, at that age, you're given a car, brand spanking new car, you're getting paid each week and you're getting free stash and free kit. And it was just amazing from going to play for free to then all of a sudden playing at that standard. And then I just knew when I was there that I was never going to go and play for England. I knew there was better players. You know, you were at the best club in Europe and you knew that people in your position were ahead of you. I just knew I wasn't going to play for England. Then I, I, I made the decision at the age of 23 just to stop. Okay. Because I always had business in my, business in my mind. And um, that's when all the events really cranked up a notch. Yeah. Well, what are your biggest takeaways or lessons learned from playing rugby for all those years? Teamwork. Hard graft. Respecting your pals. Fighting for your pals. Leading the way. Becoming the best. Becoming mentally strong. There's loads. Mm-hmm. Like the mental strength is the one for me. I grew up, I grew up mentally strong because I had to. Um, and when you take mental strength into adult life, no one can get in your way. No one can get in your way if you've got a strong mind. Because remember, it's only your mind. It's only your mind is playing games with you. If you understand right. the little man on your shoulder is t- telling you or making you feel that You've got fear. Well, fear, you can do one. I've got no fear, man. And fear is just an emotion. If you turn that fear into excitement, then you're away. 
It's about understanding your emotions. It's about having self-awareness of how you're feeling. And when you know how you're feeling, you can act in certain ways. But if you're not self-aware, it's very difficult because your emotions can take over. Right. Yeah. And, you know, fear and anxiety, like your body, your body can't tell the difference between that and excitement too. So if you know that, you can just flip it, like you said, and say, you know, I'm excited about this. And then you just turn it positive. 100%. When you wake up in the morning, what's the, the average person thinks of something negative. Apparently it's like 70, don't quote me, but it's like 75% of people think of negative thoughts first thing in the morning when they wake up. Change the mindset, man. Reprogram it. If you're stuck in your ways, reprogram the mind. It takes time. It does take time to reprogram the mind if you're not used to it. But, you know, this is about self-development. People forget about self-development. People just think they must just go and get a job, come home, watch telly, go to bed, and get on the beers on the weekend. Actually, invest some time and money in yourself. It's more important, far more important than anything else. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so you quit rugby. What is your business focus shift to like what do you get into is it the nightclub scene yeah the nightclub scene i, I saw an opportunity when i was, went from school uh, we call it school and then we went to university i think you guys call it college didn't you yeah yeah so when they, i went from school from 400 kids making money all the time doing haircuts for three pound putting tram lines in for an extra pound huh. selling Timberland jumpers, selling this, selling that, whatever. And it was fantastic money I was earning back then. Maybe like, I don't know, you know, with those Timberland jumpers, maybe like a thousand pounds a week at like 16, 17. It was, it was proper. Oh, wow. A week. Yeah, man. Because I knew that I had something they wanted and I, I would wait for they get their pocket money at five o'clock. They get all the pocket money and go, but I'd have them all lined up. Bam, 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 bam. Thank you. Just because I grew up with, this, you know, I grew up with knowing how to make money, I guess. And then I went to university and I saw there was 12,000 people, 12,000 people on campus at a sports university. My eyes were like that. So it's like, yeah. well, right, what, how can I earn a pound a man? And um, I started throwing parties at the, I went to the local nightclub and on a Wednesday night was sports night. And that nightclub was two pound entry to get in. And that nightclub had a thousand people every week. I went to that nightclub and said, let's make it three pound. I'll keep a pound. You guys keep your two pound and I'll get more people into that nightclub and I'll get them earlier, get them there earlier. So they're drinking on your bars. And I did that in my final year at university and they agreed to it. So I guaranteed a thousand pound a week. And then we got those numbers up to 2000 people a week, every single week in my final year of uni. So I was coming out £2,000 every single week. And then that was in Loughborough, which is in the middle of the UK. Okay. And then I had another club down in London on a Tuesday. So I drive down there on a Tuesday, throw the party there in a nightclub in, in, in London, 1,000 people, take all the door money. On the Wednesday, on, at 4 o'clock in the morning, I drive back up to Loughborough and take the door money there. So it was, you know, was £3,000 a week in the final year. It was like serious. This is, I'm talking this is like year... This is year 1999, 2000. Mm -hmm. Wow. Every week. Yeah. Yeah. So how, how did you, how were you able to drive more and more students to these nightclubs? Promoting the backside out of it. 
a few of them, I was one of the main faces on campus, one of the rugby boys, everyone knew. And back then there was no social media, remember? Right. You know, so it's all the power of, of flyers and posters and setting up teams on campus that people would be promoting for you and with you to generate more and more people. Again, it's building relationships. Again, it's looking after all the captains of all the rugby, netball, hockey, football teams, looking after all the social sex, get them a VIP card, get some free entry and Q jump. Then they'll bring all their other people, you know? So again, the business model hasn't changed from a 10 year old mm-hmm. to a 20 year old to now a 40 year old, you know, <laughs> still the same stuff, but just bigger numbers. Yeah. Yeah. And so how does, how does that evolve? Like when you graduate university? Yeah. Well, I, in that final year at university, I hardly did any lectures. Again, I was just getting through, you know, I was, I was paying friends to do coursework for me. I was, cause I just was focused on this. Oh my God, I found a niche in the market here that no one in the UK is doing. So I think I never really wanted to be at uni or was only there to party and play sport again, but I was at the best sports university in, in Europe, you know? So when money takes over like that and you think I've hit jackpot, I'm then thinking when I leave university next year, I've got to go and get other cities around the UK that I can put these student nights on. And that's what I did. Hmm. That's what I did. And we scaled the business up from, two nights every week and we scaled it up to the the year after university we went to three nightclubs every week in different cities and we scaled it up to 12 nightclubs every single week around the uk from manchester to london to birmingham to leicester to you know and it was it was me and my best mate and that mobile phone Mm -hmm. there's no social media so it was the power of us to setting up teams in different cities, printing a million flyers and making sure that those flyers are getting to hand so people knew about your student night on a Wednesday night or a Tuesday night or a Thursday night in different cities. Hmm. We'd take the door money and the nightclub would take the bar money. And we created a wonderful brand back then on the dot-com boom, a brand called popyourcherry.com. <laughs> we, uh, it really worked, resonated well with the students and you imagine big red cherries like the Pasha logo in Ibiza. Okay. Uh, and that's, we went in there and kitted out the whole club with big, massive glitter cherries and the whole place was draped. And, you know, and, you know, some of our clubs, our clubs were from a thousand people to the, the super clubs in England to a capacity of 2,700 people. You're talking massive, massive parties. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot more money. <laughs> And a num- again, same business model, but the right. numbers were a lot bigger. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's awesome. What are your biggest takeaways? Or like- the- oh, go in ahead. The- after we did that for nine years, and in the end, we threw a total of one thousand five hundred parties in the UK. <laughs> wow. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. Yeah. yeah. What are your biggest takeaways um, and lessons learned from doing that, doing, being in nightclubs for all those years? Well, again, you know what people want. Again, you find out what people want. People want a party. You've got to remember, people want community. 
People want fun. People want fancy dress. People want good music. People want to drink. People want to be around the same sex or opposite sex. They just want to have fun, man. And in the UK, this is a big party country, as you know. And mm -hmm. um, we created something that people wanted. We created an experiential night that people wanted. You know, and back then there was no, um, there was no influencers. But back then, in the year 2000 and up, the reality TV started. So we'd get the reality TV stars who were like mega on telly. We'd get them out there and put them in the nightclub and they'd just get swamped and people would just want to buy tickets for this weekly event or do theme nights and we'll have fire breathers and we'll have uh, DJs, famous DJs and famous sports people coming in there. And it, we just created this snowball effect, um, which the students absolutely loved. And the good thing about students is when they finish, they do first year, second year, third year. When they leave the third year, new students come in in the first year. This unrolling, ongoing rolling students constantly coming in on a, uh, on a flow, which was a delight. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And so fast forwarding a bit here, when does the seed plant itself in your mind to start Bournemouth Sevens? Good question. That was in 2007. And I was sitting on Bournemouth Beach with a good mate of mine, Finchie. And um, the idea come about that I saw, you know, in the UK, there was lots of music festivals. And around the world, there was lots of music. Well, lots of music festivals back then. And I just saw there wasn't a sport and music festival. And all my life has been sport and business from a young kid, like we spoke about. Um, even to the nightclubs, it was tying up all the sports teams and getting them there. And, you know, my passion is sport and business. And again, there's nothing in the UK which was a sport or music festival. So come up with the idea and thought, let's give it a go. How can we amalgamate a music festival with loads of DJs and bands and dance tents and 80s tents and VIP tents and garage tents and drum and bass? And da -da. How can we mix that and get loads of sports teams there? And that's where the idea came about um, in 2007. Okay. Did you get any pushback from people, friends, family, when you announced that you wanted to start this festival? Yes, absolutely. Not, not family are all really supportive. I've got a real tight family, real tight. You know, I'm really tight with my mum, my dad, my sister, uh, my brothers, and, and, and I've got, you know, two best friends for one of them for 40 years. Uh, and the other one for 35 years. So I've got really tight people around me. I've got a wonderful tight bunch of mates as well for 25, 30 years. And, you know, and um, people thought I was mad. <laughs> when I told them the idea, people thought I was effing mad. They're like, what are you doing? You're mad. You, you've lost the plot. I was like, no, no, trust me. I think there's an opportunity here. And um, my tight people and my tight pals and family got behind me. So if you think you could, if you think it's there, go for it. But a lot of people in the industry just thought I was a lunatron. <laughs> I saw an angle. Mm -hmm. I saw an angle. And when I see angles and I think it can work, I'm a man on a mission, a man on a mission. And, 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 you know, the internet hasn't been around very long, 25 years, say. I was a man on a mission and no one will ever, ever, ever outwork me on doing research and homework on something that I've got an idea and a passion about. That's exactly what I did. Yeah. 
And what were they, what were they telling you? Like why this wouldn't work? Why you shouldn't do this? Too much competition, too much competition in the UK, music festivals. Why would people want to come and do a sport music festival? No one's done it before. If they haven't done it before, surely someone would have done it already. And I was like, that's the opportunity. Mm-hmm. No one has done it. How can I amalgamate the two? Right. And that's why we created the world's largest sport and music festival down here in sunny Bournemouth in the UK. Yeah. And so you mentioned you started in 2007. How much did the, the idea, great... The idea was in 2007. Oh, the idea, the sorry. 2008 in May, the May bank holiday. Okay. And so how much did the Great Recession then play a role in, this, in, like, in, in that launch? Well, the, again, the recession came and no banks were loaning money. You know, my naivety worked an absolute treat back then because I thought it was going to cost £100,000 to put on. And you remember when you transitioned from a nightclub throwing parties, as a promoter, you're bringing people to the nightclub, but the nightclub's already there. The bars are there, the toilets are there, the security's there, the lighting's there, the DJ box is there, the flooring's there. When you, and we turn up, and we take the door money and at, at 10 p.m., and at 2 a.m., we drive away and say thank you very much and everyone's happy everyone's had a good night the owners of the club have had loads of money on the bar and we've taken the door when you go into a field i'm going into a blank canvas 67 acres of land so imagine just a green bit of land 67 acres of land and now i've got to put 12 nightclubs the equivalent in one field so i didn't have a clue about fencing showers, toilets, policing, security, uh, Wi-Fi, fire brigade, councils, the airport next door to us. The list just went on and on and on and on and on. Right. That really whacked me around the chops very quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, and my naivety got me through it because anyone who would have known all that stuff would have said, probably said stay away from it so it's interesting at the moment i i mentor other budding entrepreneurs in startups and what have you and i always beat the drum of take calculated risks take calculated risks the risk that i took in 2008 was the most uncalculated risk you could ever find (laughs) completely and you know six months before the first festival um everyone wanted their money they wanted 100% up front. So the Marquis company want 30 grand. The showers want 15 grand. The security company with 70 security want 25 grand. The, the rent of the field and everything else wanted 15 grand, 20 grand. It all started adding up. And because I hadn't had a track, track record of throwing okay. festivals, everyone wanted the money up front. And um, I couldn't believe it. So six months prior to the first festival, we run out of money. And that was the, that was the truth and the matter of fact of it. And that was a stark reality. And I wouldn't wish that on anyone. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah. So if, if like basically no one showed up to that, to the first festival, what would life have looked like? Oh, I wouldn't be sitting here now having a conversation with you 
in the setup and everything we got here. But mm-hmm. uh, back then, um, run out of money. It was, it, was, it was basically, I had two options. We paid a hundred grand out. The festival cost 300,000 pounds in year one. No banks were loaning money. Hardly any sponsors around because everyone had tightened ship and didn't want to get involved because of the whole the global recession. So the only option we had was to remortgage our house. I had no staff. It was me, a mobile phone, and my wife. And the only option was to remortgage the house. So that's what we did. And if no one turned up on that first day, because people didn't put their card into a computer back then and buy tickets, people just turned up on the day. You know, the party people. Um, the good thing was is that all the sports teams, the rugby, netball, hockey, uh, dodgeball and volleyball teams, were buying their uh, team entries. So they were coming in batches of 10s and 20s people. So we sold 96 teams in year one. Um, okay. Rugby teams, rugby sevens teams. And then I didn't want it to be a sausage fest. So we had to get chicks there. <laughs> so we had to get netball. So we introduced netball um, with the rugby and it just worked a treat. And that was the, one of the key to the successes of it is today. Amalgamating rugby with netball with a lot of partying and fancy dress. But going back to your point, when you spend a hundred grand, you've got two options. You either walk away from it and say, let's just leave it. Or do you go for it? And I remember speaking to my wife because she had a really good job at JP Morgan back then. And I couldn't breathe because there was too much on my plate. I'd taken on too much juggling everything, trying to promote it trying to uh, build the websites, trying to get sponsors, trying to get teams in, trying to, it was just, it was madness. Um, Cause I still thought I was in that nightclub mode. You know, I didn't have a team of people. We didn't have any money to have a team of people back then. So I said to her, you've got to leave your job. Can you leave your job and come support me? And she was like, she's a complete, I'm a risk taker. And she's completely the opposite. You know, she doesn't want risk in her life. And she gave up her job and um, come and supported me on it lesser because mm-hmm. there was a lot of tears there was a lot of emotion there's a lot a lot of tears especially the night to say to her by the way to let you know we banks aren't loaning or anything we've got to remortgage the house and then those tears just doubled up every day thinking if people didn't come into this festival we've lost our home you know right. and that was the reality wow. and it was horrible but i did i was so strong-minded i was like get out of the way. We're going to make this work. Watch this. We're going to make this work. I'm, I just had to do it. And when your back's against the wall and you have to make something work, trust me, you, you'll make it work. Yeah. So what's your ultimate vision for Born the Sevens Festival? It is what it is today. We're year 13. You know, we've grown from 4,000 people year one. You've got to remember on that first day, I was waiting at the door of the festival. You've built the site. It's taken two weeks to build the whole site for the dance tents and da, 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 And you're ready to open the doors on that first day. And you open the curtains in the morning. You're just praying the weather's good. And we opened the curtains and it was blue skies and sunny. And that's very rare in England. I'll tell you that now. Yeah. And, um, and then all of a sudden I started seeing all this queue, this massive queue building. I was like, oh my God, this is going to, I think we're onto something. And that feeling I've said it before and I'll say it till the day I die that you cannot beat that feeling of when you're promoting hard for something and you're seeing your customers turn up 
wanting to buy tickets to come into your festival. And again, it just reminds me when I was a 10 year old to now as a 30 year old when I first launched it and now as a 40 year old, it's the same business model, but now people are paying a hundred quid to 300 quid to come into the festival rather than the old pound and two pound back in the nightclub when you're a 10 year old. Yeah. 30,000 people. <laughs> right. It's nice. yeah. yeah. Yeah, for sure. And so now with, you know, COVID-19 and the pandemic has obviously taken a huge hit on the events industry, as you know, how have you had to pivot your business or even create new businesses um, in order to like survive and continue to grow during this time? Yeah. I was like, um, well, we've all been hit by the C word, which I don't like to use because it brings negativity in my eyes, but we use it. The COVID came and COVID came in March the 24th and Boris Johnson, our prime minister went on telly and said the pandemic, and I didn't even know what the word pandemic was. He said, there's a pandemic coming and it's going to peak on our Bournemouth sevens weekend, which was the May bank holiday. And then I just thought, Oh no. So it's like, as an entrepreneur, you got to think on your feet and be nimble. So we moved the date from the May bank holiday of the festival and moved it back to the August bank holiday, giving us more breathing space, thinking, okay, we'll be fine by August, hopefully. Um, and then that didn't happen. So we moved the date. You got to remember, we're about to open the doors to the festival in two months time. So 30,000 tickets, everyone from all around the UK is excited to come to the festival. People flying in from South Africa and New Zealand, Australia and Dubai and Hong Kong for our festival, you know? So all of a sudden to be told we've moved the date, you know, the, the response was, we're keeping our tickets. We're going to move the date. We're coming with you. We support Bournemouth Sevens, everyone. It was an amazing feeling. And then two months ago, we had to cancel. And that was a real kick in the plums, you know? But the stark reality is we had to do what the government has said. We had to make sure everyone's safe. Um, but yeah, it made us, so I, so basically on from March 24th, I knew something was coming. And for the past six months, I've pivoted. I've called it a pandemic pivot. Um, I've done two pandemic pivots. The first one was to create the, the Eventful Entrepreneur podcast. Yep. which we launched yesterday Okay, With myself is episode one and the biggest events promoter in the world, Barry Hearn is episode number two and the biggest rugby player in Europe and in England, uh, James Haskell is number three on the episode. So three big hitters and um, <laughs> we're really, really excited and we've got a load of big hitters we've done. So I've learned a whole new world. One, I've learned how to use a computer. Right. <laughs> ago because i've run my whole business of this okay my whole business um and there's you know i'm one phone call away from anyone there on that phone so it's been it's worked well for me but i've learned a lot of things i've learned how to use zoom i didn't even know what zoom was i didn't know yep. what the word furlough was i didn't know the word pandemic was and i never used a computer because i didn't have to so i've learned lots and i've learned how to I've learned lots of things. You learn about yourself and learn to slow down and to reflect. And it feels like a really wonderful reset. So thank you, COVID-19, for coming. Um, not in the nasty ways of people dying, what have you, but it's just slowed everyone down. Yep. And I've enjoyed the last six months with my family and friends. And 
launching your own podcast is exciting because I'm going to be able to interview some really cool people from around the world. And this is only just the beginning. We've built a podcast studio here, podcast and video studio. Um, and it's just the beginning. And the response we've had so far on uh, Apple iTunes and um, Spotify, we've jumped straight, straight behind uh, Gary V in one day. Gary V's number one. We just dropped one from, from when we launched, we've gone from 100 as everyone sits. We've gone boom, straight in. So who knows where this podcast world is going to take us. But That's awesome. I'm thoroughly enjoying it, buddy. Yeah. So that was Pandemic Pivot 1. And then Pandemic Pivot 2 for us is, we're, you know, we've been in the events world. I've been in the events world for 20-odd years now. And there's no, there's no one I don't know in the events world. And we feel like we're fairly good at it. You know, 1,500 events, parties, and 12 festivals now. So we're gonna, we are in the middle of creating a, a dynamic online events course where anyone who wants to change industry can come and get involved in probably the most exciting industry you'll ever, ever be involved in, and that's the events industry because there is so much fun in this industry. So we're going to teach you a three-month course online. We'll teach you more in three months than you'll learn at three years at university at a fraction of the price and at a fraction of the time from the real people behind the biggest and best festivals and events in the UK. So, you know, it's all being pre-recorded um, and it's going to give you great certificates and diplomas and it's going to teach you the stuff you need to know about events, you know, from creating yep. a brand, from uh, planning an event, whether it's a small event, a medium-sized event or a big event. You know, we're going to give you all the skills that you need to know, whether it's marketing, whether it's sales, whether it's planning the event, whether it's creating a brand, whether it's creating the idea. Um, yeah, so we're super, super excited. We've had some amazing guests in pre-recording at the studio. We've had a lot of celebrities come in and pre-recording at the studio. So um, that'll be launched in uh, December 2020. Okay. Awesome. That's exciting. And really then exciting. In the interest of time here, I'm going to get to my final question. So as is the name of the podcast, the driving force podcast, what do you think has been your driving force throughout your life? Driving force my life. It's been my mum and my dad, you know, they've given me a step up to get me out of the pub life. They've given me that step up. They gave, they've worked, they worked so, so hard from seven in the morning to 11 o'clock at night dealing with alcoholics and problems and, and, and they give me the step ups. So the driving force is hundred percent them. Um, but I'm relentless. My parents are relentless. I'm relentless. Um, and I'm not an academic. I've got a lot of other skill sets that have set me apart from, apart from the rest. And, uh, yeah, I'm on a real fun journey. And I think the next chapter in my life now, which the journey I'm about to embark on, I think it's going to be even more fun. Awesome. That's a great place to end. Where can people go to find you online? Yeah, man. You can go to rogerwoodall.com, which is my website. Or you can find me on LinkedIn. I'm very active on LinkedIn. LinkedIn. So get me on LinkedIn and uh, we can hook up, we can chat. And uh, any questions, I'm there. And I've just launched uh, an Instagram account a couple of days ago, Roger okay. Woodall Official. So you can get me on Roger Woodall Official at LinkedIn and Instagram. 
or go to my website. Awesome. And you all can also visit my website, chaserosa.com and follow me on Instagram at chaserosa4 for updates on new episodes. Thanks everyone who's listening and see you next time.